welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, we're recasting Nate's 2020 interview with Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore, A Tribal History. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. It's really great to be here. And so this is uh, a very important piece of work. You did a, a book in two editions. I think it came out in 2002 and then again in 2010, expanded and updated. And you also did a documentary that came out 2006. Right. So, you know, this is kind of like the story of, my my youth of or you know my my story growing up in many ways uh was my life was this scene that i kind of came up through and um it's it's kind of i have a it's kind of a long story but uh the easiest way to describe it is my um my father worked in new york my father worked right around in the lower east side and like the when the bad old days of the seventies and um, right around the corner from CBGB's right up the block from St. Mark's place. So at a very young age, meaning like 12, 13, 14, I was going to these places to drink and to, and I found record stores and I discovered this whole scene and um, which was punk rock, which was a very <clears throat> something that I, I really respected the whole thing, but I, and I really loved the music and I saw so many seminal shows coming up through my teens, but I didn't fully relate to it um, in that these people were older. These were people who had gone to art school, uh, kind of intellectuals get junkies, which, and none, you know, none of that was really me. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that Bauhaus was an art movement. You know, when I first got there, I just knew it as a band. You know, that's kind of where I was coming from. So I was from the suburbs of New Jersey. Uh, I spent all my weekends with my dad, like I'm saying, at this, you know, in the Lower East Side. So I have this kind of double life where it's suburban and rock and roll. And I go down to college in Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1980. And there's like this whole new form of punk rock going on. It's spearheaded by the bad brains. 
And, you know, there's these new bands like the Teen Idol single had just come out when I was there, which is the precursor to Minor Threat. And uh, these were suburban kids with their own form of revolution, social revolution. And uh, I fell in with that. So I was not a musician. I, like I said, I was coming to college. I came to study politics at George Washington University right by the White House. And it was the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. So a lot of things were really coming to a head. And there was this movement and Dead Kennedys put out these records, which were, you know, and this whole kind of anti-Reagan meets uh, a new form of punk rock based on what the Bad Brains and a lot of the West Coast bands were doing, which was the emphasis on speed and energy. And it was physical. I was a kid who was, you know, a letterman in sports, but I never really fit in with the jock culture. So there was this whole and whole thing kind of came really spoke to me, but I wasn't a musician. So uh, I was at a PSOL had come through uh, on their first tour. And I met their manager who was also the dead Kennedy's manager. And he convinced me to, I, I was a radio DJ at my college radio station. I was like the first kid playing these records on these labels like Discord and Touch and Go. I had Ian Mackay on my radio show. And basically because I was the only person, you know, connected to anything who was part of this very kind of feral punk scene. There was, there was no press. There was no um, media attention, really. I mean, I had a college radio show, so and I talked, you know, and Ian came on and played his records and gave me some. And since then, I met the manager of, uh, since I worked at the radio station, I, I met the manager of the Dead Kennedys, and he uh, convinced me to book the Dead Kennedys, and I booked them into my school cafeteria, and I almost got <laughs> thrown out of college. But I did, um, that kind of set me on this path, right? And uh, I became the kid promoter in town. I did the Dead Kennedys a couple times. I did Black Flag, Circle Jerks. I, you can look it up. But I, I mean, certainly 20, 25 shows I did in my my four years there. So um, flash forward, I moved to New York. Uh, there, there was a burgeoning hardcore scene there. Um, but there was also so much more going on in terms of uh, I had worked at the radio station, so I was able to get work as a DJ in New York nightclubs. So there was hip hop and club music and the dawn of what you would now call techno. And there's just, you know, there was just so much going on. And I started, uh, I was an editor at Paper Magazine. I started my own fanzine called Seconds, which we did 52 issues of. So I had, I had I was always a punk rocker, and I was always attached to this hardcore thing. But uh, you know, oh, and and of course speed metal, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, there was so many different areas that I was more interested in. But then there was this punk revival 
like right after the grunge explosion, which I was tight with all those bands because those were basically hardcore kids that I had met on the road, you know, through the years, like, like Nirvana Soundgarden, uh, um, and then the bad religion was my, yeah and then the second wave oh, yeah, of the right, punk yeah. revival in the 90s with, with a lot of bands oh, that yeah, so, make yeah, yeah. cameo appearances in the book like bad religion that was totally a very minor band in the 80s but stuck with it and had a record company Epitaph in, in the 90s they become huge on their own label right but, so, yeah that's it's really cool you say that because that's exactly what it was kind of leading to which is this punk revival kind of happens in the early nineties. And I had known Brett for bad religion. They would be like the fourth band on a black flag bill, you know? And, um, they, I used to go see them at CB. There was a, there was a tour. I want to say it was 1988 and it was, um, bad religion in L seven. And, you know, there was 50 people there, you know? So that was right before they went to, I think their story was they went to Germany and then it just exploded there. Um, that's where they finally. So, so I get to know all these bands. Like, um, well, there was a band in New York called Degeneration, which was kind of like the focal point of the punk scene in New York. And they had a club called Coney Island High. So the touring bands would come through. So that's, you know, you would get to know Green Day and Rancid and Offspring. And I had this connection through my writing with Epitaph during all those times and, you know, so, but, so here's, here's where I get to American hardcore is that I start hearing people telling me the history of hardcore, you know, like this, this, the hardcore thing, you know, like people are like 10, 15 years younger than me. And that's not an ageist thing, but they just kind of had it wrong because, there was there. no real documented history. Sure, there were fanzines, but there was no Rolling Stone article. There was no anything on TV or broadcast. I mean, this was a such a deep, deep subculture. You know, this was like I can't really explain. It's hard to explain subculture in the day in the modern era because. What we're talking about is things that gestate for 10, 15 years, you know? So I, like my life from like 15 to 35 was incredibly underground. And in a minute it became huge, you know, it's like, you know, like I worked with like all those, like I'm saying all the grunge bands, and, you know, and then, then there's this punk revival, which is, you know, so much bigger than even the English thing was. It's like the biggest thing of all. And um, anyway, so I was hearing a lot of history. I was seeing some of the bands go on. I was interviewed. Oh, so I'd interview a lot of these bands. I'm not going to name a couple of them, but I think I said one or two. I said one of them just before, but I was interviewing one of these bands and it's um like they don't know who I am and they're telling me stuff about what, Hey, I had very long hair at the time. This is kind of a fuck you to everybody. And I was like, and he's trying to school me on punk. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> and then there was this series of rock and history of rock and roll series on, I want to say it was PBS. It was like a, 
you'll have to look it up. It's got a, it's like a 10 part series of the history of rock. And I watched this thing and it goes from like the band X straight to Nirvana, like hardcore never even happened, you know? And I was like, because, the, you know, they just didn't even know, the people who made it probably just didn't even know about it, you know, or didn't even consider it music. People didn't even consider this stuff music. It was like, you know, everyone talks about, like, how, like, how the hell are you going to have a career, you know, making this stuff? You know, it's like, it's, you're not doing it for those reasons. You know, it's, it's such a deeper thing than, like, becoming a rock star or, you know, it was like you were buying into something so deep and I'm really just, you know, as I've been hit, you know, hit, hit the 50, my fifties mark, it's like, uh, you know, I realized like how powerful this whole thing was. It's like, we were kind of like war, you know, like war veterans. Like you could pick up, like if you served with somebody, you can meet them 20 years later and pick up that conversation like it was yesterday. And, um, I'm friends with people from all walks of life that I would never know if it wasn't for this music. I, my home, um, uh, like everything I do dates back to this, this hardcore thing. And I think, uh, that was the focus of all the projects you just saw. And that's what, why it got so big. Um, uh, I will tell you a funny story is that, um, uh, before I went to Feral House with my book uh, with American Hardcore uh, and the late Adam Parfrey was a close friend of mine. Um, but before that, I wanted to give it try a major to see if I'd get it on like a, a major publisher. And I didn't have a deal with somebody until I met the head of the company and he said, hey, why don't you put Debbie Harry on the cover? <laughs> American hardcore. That's classic. And um, I just walked away from a. I walked away from a sixty thousand dollar deal and, and almost got myself sued by the agent. You know, so but there was no way I was doing that. And I took a very you know, Feral House. You earn your money. They're a great company, but you, you know, as as an independent, you make you earn what you make. You know, you, I mean, you earn what you sell. So American hardcore book, I went on a tour. I'll tell you the book I got, a, uh, I'm in New York city. We had an event, a little event on September 11th, 2001. I got oh, the, my first copy of American hardcore on September 10th. And, um, you know, I didn't even know like, like what was going to happen with humanity, let alone the book. So, um, uh, also, so, but I had had planned a book tour. So I went left about, you know, 30 days later, went off on a two month tour, which is like, I just did it like a band. Cause that's the only thing I really know what to do. So I would go to bookstores and I would go to record stores. I know I did a whole bunch of stuff in Texas. Um, you know, I did, uh, I just did it like a band. Uh, the editor, George Petros, and I got in, it was like getting the van, you know. I worked out some scams and I was able to rent a car, like rent a truck with unlimited miles, and I used the unlimited miles, and we went to Seattle, and we went to, you know, whatever. You know, we did L.A., 
uh, art galleries, rock shows, all ages gigs. And by the time I got home, well, maybe not two months, maybe about five weeks actually. But so, but anyway, by the time I got home by Thanksgiving slash Christmas, the book had already sold out. And I um, knew that when I was writing this. And it's like, the book is a vitally important service that you've done in cataloging this history that was totally erased. Uh, very little known in the first place. I mean, this was kids, a few dozen of kids in a couple dozen cities, a few dozen each. And in some cities, you know, L.A. You had a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people involved. But this was a minuscule scene of people photocopying fanzines, recording cassettes, uh, tiny record labels pressing, you know, editions of two, three thousand, maybe sometimes five hundred. And, you know, you documented it. And, you know, I was in Borger, Texas in the 80s and got to see Black Flag in 86 and Who's wow. Do in 87. It was very we were very desperate for news. You know, it took us a month and a half to find out that that D Boone of the Minutemen had died in late 85. So the, there was no internet. It was very hard to get information about this stuff. And one of the the groups that I had never heard of until your book was this uh, band we're about to play, Middle Class, which their single Out of Vogue is considered by many to be one of the two first hardcore punk singles. And let's hear it. This is Middle Class, Out of Vogue. was middle class out of vogue which many consider to be one of the first hardcore punk singles and like many of their hardcore brethren they came out of the greater la suburban area la had a punk scene it was one of the few cities in the u.s that immediately took up the baton uh once the cbg cbgb scene in new york had exploded and then punk you know, exploded big in England and LA took up the mantle with bands like X that you mentioned, but also germs and fear. In a lot of ways, they were precursors to hardcore. They, they tended to be older and more educated and the Hollywood crowd was a little more artsy, but there were elements in that LA punk scene that pointed directly to where hardcore was going. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's uh, LA. I mean, I, I didn't, I, don't mean anything disparaging of the um, uh, the, the LA uh, punk bands, but they had the energy. But they what they didn't have was the work ethic of the bands that came from more of the suburbs around them, which were, of course was like Black Flag and Bad Religion, all these guys who started their own bands and labels themselves. And toured and toured and toured. Like a band like Black Flag were just notorious workaholics. Greg Ginn starts this in a church in Huntington Beach, which was absolutely Siberia culturally, as far as you know, the media elite and downtown LA was concerned. And doing things like practicing eight hours a day. You know, there's yeah. a story in the book about Black Flag booking a rehearsal studio on Christmas Day <laughs> to yeah. to practice all day long, and just you know, getting in the van and touring and they had sort of a Johnny Appleseed quality where every day, everywhere they went and they're 
basically calling random people up and trying to get any place to play. They're playing in rec rooms and basements and abandoned buildings. And everywhere they go, a scene sort of seems to follow in their wake. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Black Flag, the power of Black Flag is completely translated to vinyl for the modern era. But I can say that that was definitely the most intense band I've ever seen. And I it was cult-like almost. It was, uh, I saw them probably close to 20 times. And uh, I've later learned that a lot of what Greg Ginn was doing was not musically, but uh, business-wise emulating what the Grateful Dead had done which was the ultimate anti-anti-anti band for anybody who loved hardcore, but they were uh, a, a self-contained touring machine. And that's what, who had their own gear and put it, you know, controlled their uh, records and, you know, records weren't the most important part of their thing. So, uh, but yeah, uh, that aside, um, such an important band and um really all the bands you mentioned before of course were on they started on black flag's label right so yeah and that comes incredible and that one thing that comes through in, in the book and i think you do a good job of of setting the scene and you talk about some of the sort of generic factors of hardcore as a movement, um, things, you know, like the, the context of Reaganism and, and coming up in the early eighties when, when the majority culture is trying to have this morning in America moment yep. that's totally fabricated and fake. And we're living with the consequences of that. You know, the decision yep. to ignore Jimmy Carter's, you know, attempts to do something about the energy crisis and climate change. And Reagan was just like, screw that. We're going to spend the grandkids money and have a big party. And, and we mm -hmm. did, but you know, hardcore was fun for those kids who, for various reasons were disaffected and, and called bullshit on all that. And, you know, and then things like, it's a very violent scene, mostly because it's young dudes. It tends to be overwhelmingly male, yeah. although it wasn't necessarily explicitly sexist. There had been bands in punk like the Dead Boys or Fear that were explicitly sexist, but hardcore is almost more asexual than sexist. And Yeah, I, I try to make that point. You know, it's like, I think if there was a chapter that bothered a lot of people I knew, or troubled some people I knew, uh, from the book was where I have to just ask the obvious question. Okay, what is this with a bunch of guys with no shirts on jumping on top of each other? Right? So, yeah. um, you know, but it, it is more asexual is the answer. It's like football in that way. Like, and I kind of, uh, I kind of got that part of it, just the camaraderie and the mucking around aspect of it. Yeah, and the, and there was elements of homophobia. There was certainly violence against homosexuals, but I think in the context of the overall culture, which was just an incredibly homophobic society, even more than we are today, and very violent. That's another thing I don't think people, younger people realize is if you shaved your head and put on an anarchy jacket, you were basically asking for an ass-whipping anywhere in the United States. 100%. I mean, you're, you're in Texas, so that's, you know, I mean, I've oh, carried yeah. on for much longer for... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the late late seventies, early eighties. You know, so um, the uh, 
it was, and I remember, you know, the reaction when it's got, you know, to get cast in uh, Palestine, Texas or something, you know. Um, so uh, I really feel like um, it was like an empowerment movement, really. Um, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I mean, look at what was created by a bunch of dudes who... And I mean, think about like if you just cumulatively put, um, I don't know, Greg Ginn, Ian Mackay, uh, I don't know, whatever. You you take five of the Glenn Danzig, take five of these people and uh, the Bad Brains, whatever. Put five of these people together, like how much they changed the world. Yeah, you know, and, uh, the, and it's staggering. It's really like a a staggering thing, and. Uh, I, you know, to go to DC and have, um, you know, this rising, I guess you would just call it the early discord era. Um, uh, you know, some of the bands weren't, you know, some of the bands were better than the other, but at a certain point it's silver or gold, you know, it's like, they're both good, you know, um, the energy, I mean, I remember, I was out with No Trend, and we were on a tour. We were opening for the Dead Kennedys. We did, like, about 10 dates across the country with them. COC was actually one of those bands, Reed Mullen, rest in peace. Um, uh, but um, I remember when we played a club show in Norman, Oklahoma, the band who opened for us, it was their very first show, was Flaming Lips. So... And I know when we played in uh, Seattle, like the second or third band on the bill was Soundcarden. And so, um, you know, it uh, definitely, it's, it's heavy, you know, like the, the, the roots of it is so deep, you know. Um, it, it was a movement uh, that had... And a... it, it's, like no support from the music industry. In fact, it had active opposition from the music industry. Clubs were yeah, not booked. I, mean, I, I, I could have been a very successful in the music career if I didn't keep didn't keep that hardcore punk rock thing. You know, um, but you know, it's an aesthetic that you um, that people hated at the time. It wasn't like you didn't have a chance. It was like. Uh, you know, I had kind of like messy hair, you know, and some snaggly clothes that would sit in a punk show, but I was hardly, like I didn't have a mohawk or anything like that. And I was still constant, you know, hey, it. hey, just, hey, Kivo, you know, like they didn't even know what to call you back then, you know, like, you know, I felt more in those years than every year put together, even as like an eight-year-old. You know, where you probably fight your most, and uh, um, yeah. I would be like, I I fought, definitely fought more in like those like, you know, eighteen to twenty, what uh, like sixteen to twenty years, just defending myself for like being into this stuff. You know? And it it's it was like the effect of a cultural depth charge. It took fuses were lit in the early '80s, and connections were made. And it took time for the greater culture to feel it. But eventually, in the 90s and on into now, it's still reverberating. And, and let's hear Black Flag's version of Louie Louie, which is just a classic case of 
taking rock history and and throwing it in people's faces. This really pissed people off at the time. This is Descadino leading Black Flag to Louis Louis. Black Flag's infamous cover of the Richard Berry classic, Louie Louie, which had a big impact at the time. I mean, that was on a Rhino Records compilation of, of different versions of Louie Louie that included, you know, the Beach Boys and the Kinks and marching bands. And so in certain ways, Black Flag in particular around 81 with their Damaged album was flirting with some acceptance. I mean, they're playing shows in L.A. where two, 3,000 people are coming out. And they briefly signed this deal with Unicorn, which was a shady subsidiary of MCA, the major label, and it looked like they were going to square the circle and get major label distribution for an un- a totally underground album, but it all fell apart. What happened there? Yeah, I was around for a lot of that stuff. It was basically like, it's kind of like what you had just said about the music business. Nobody really wanted to deal with it. You know, They didn't even want to really even make money on it. They kind of, you know, it wasn't like really enough money for them to like shake their own values, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, Black Flag seemed like this really big band from the outside. And uh, as I got to know them uh, right around this, I had seen them. The real, a real turning point for me was. Um, it's called the Valentine's Day Massacre, so I guess it was Valentine's Day of 1981. And um, it was Black Flag with Ben Scadina came to D.C. And SOA with Henry Rollins was one of the opening bands. So, and that was like deep D.C. hardcore culture. And that night I met um, Greg and Chuck and them and... Robo and I remember like being backstage and what was weird about it was like everyone was kind of all these really intense dudes like they're eating the pies or whatever were like kind of if I, if the way I remember it was I mean I don't know if he was one of them but I just remember a whole bunch of like skinhead dudes like sit, literally sitting on the floor and listening to them talk like that's how powerful uh, how inspirational this band was. And, uh, um, and then they came through about, I didn't really know Henry at that point, but I knew who he was from seeing him. But, uh, you know, about six months later, he ends up as the singer of the band and they came to DC. And then that's about when I started going to see them a lot. And, uh, it, it, from the outside, it looked like this big, big thing. Uh, flash forward a couple of years later, but still the same vibe. Um, Black Flag was playing a huge show in New Jersey. At a certain point in Black Flag's career, they didn't even play New York and L.A. They just played the suburbs. It was That was like the, the mission. 
you know, so you would get a black flag tour with four or five shows in New Jersey. And um, so I would, um, I remember like thinking this is the biggest band in the world and I take them back to my house and let them rob my mom's pantry for food, you know? So uh, she's never forgotten that either. Black <laughs> flag walking in her house and raiding her pantry. Yeah, and should she's I get... Still- the the deal. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. So so they. I don't know too much about the business. A guy who would really know that kind of stuff would be someone like um, Joe Carducci or like one of those kind of guys would know that work that business side. He does. He does tell me a bunch of it in the book, but I don't know all the details. But the way it's described in the book, if I remember, um. It's like they had this distribution deal where it was like they could still be an underground band and be on MCA at the same time, but that actually didn't work because you really need to be on MCA. Like they're not really going to care about you unless you're... That's the problem with a lot of distribution deals in businesses in general. At the end of the day, they're just distributing you. You're not their product. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And MCA... so I, think was, I think it was something like that. So, and then they, but, but what really complicated things was uh, they, um, there's this point where they, they actually, and this might be the only musicians I know this story of, but for their music, they were thrown in jail. They went before a judge in a case of, um, and they, um, I, the guy didn't let the judge didn't like this band, but he saw a bunch of like these freaks, you know, see these dudes, scruffy dudes walk in, and uh, you know, they spent a few days in jail. They put out this record called "Everything Went Black," where they actually don't, where they cross out the name Black Flag. It all had to do with their contract with MCA somehow. That's why I said that part I don't know. Well, yeah, but, they were injunct. Uh, there was an injunction against them. Right. And their loss right. of Unicorn yeah, Records, and they literally could not perform or release any records for like 18 months at the peak of their popularity. Right. So, and, and that was a very cr- a critical time, too. It was like, that's when the whole thing was exploding. That's when hardcore was exploding. So they got kind of fucked up because there's actually like a, it doesn't seem like it now, but there was a long lag time between Damaged and My War. And my war is almost like a different. It's almost like a different thing. I don't know if you've uh, there's. If you go online, you could find the the my war demo, which is has absolutely it's on drums. That's one of the great recordings to me. Hardcore uh, punk, whatever you know, recordings ever. Uh, but somehow they made the record with uh, Greg also playing bass as well as guitar under a pseudonym so um yeah yeah right yeah i mean and the while the band is fighting this lawsuit and they fought it brilliantly they they ended up destroying unicorn records and 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 yeah. and, and and the judge had to throw out the case but in the meantime gin has basically chased off you know des cadena the second guitarist and former vocalist quit chuck biscuits the great drummer that they poached from doa quit uh chuck dukowski the you know, to me, half of Black Flag, the bass player, 
is pushed out because he can't keep perfect time to Greg Ginn's specifications. Right. And like you say, that that uh, demo, the My War demos with two guitars, which is how it was written for, and, and Chuck Biscuits on drums is this incredibly powerful document. But instead, we get My War with overdubbed bass and really thin production, and it's the beginning of thinner and thinner sounding records from black flag and also the beginning of a very confrontational relationship between black flag and their audience the original black flag was confrontational with the greater society but by the time they're doing instrumental albums you know of stone jams and and henry rollins doing spoken word poetry and putting out three records a year uh it was and grow in their hair really long like if each it was a pre-internet era, so you may not have known, you know, that Chuck Dukowski wasn't in the band with his shaved head on damage. You were getting like, you were hearing like his easy pop before they went on stage. You know, they were just fucking with everybody. The bad long hair, they're playing black. Oh, the other big one was uh, uh, Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath with yeah, the- James Dio. The so they would play them. these records before they went on. They would grow their hair long. People would like sucker punch Henry. This is where I really gained my respect for Henry Rollins, and I will never, ever say anything bad about the guy because he took so much shit as the fucking singer of Black Flag. Like, I remember, like, he'd come out, like, with, like, long hair and Speedos, barefoot. Kids, kids would be like, you know, like be reaching into the crowd with his long hair flying. Kids are like lighting his balls on fire with a lighter or like pulling the hairs on, on his leg. You know, he was, it was just, it was so nasty. And, but it was so punk and it was so, you know, I mean, it was like the natural road, you know, it's like, as I said, this was like a cult, you know, you were buying, you know, you were buying deep into, if you got into, Black Flag, it never ended, you know. There's a bunch of people in the city who are pretty well-known who are, who are related to Black Flag, and it's still, we have that connection. I mean, we're still always talking about Black Flag. Yeah. Because they were that intense. It had that you know, effect, so. you know. And, yeah, and I mean, the- I'm a big Greg Ginn fan. I mean, I know, I get it. I know he needs a figure. I know what he's done wrong. I've seen him with five people at a at a at a club, I mean, but I respect the guy. He was the most punk of all of them. You know, he, like, set the bar so high that no one, you know, it, it kind of fucks you up. It's like, you know, there's this line in the book where, like, Henry's saying, like, you know, she's hanging out with Gin and Dukowski, and they're, like, they hear some Nick Cave in 1983 or something, and you know, those guys are going, that's so weak, that's so weak, you know, so it's like a high, it's like a high standard that you're, you're dealing with, man, you know, these guys were like, these guys were out, this was like social revolution, you know, so that's what I don't think a lot, this is, this is why I had to write the book, had to update the book, had to make the film, you know, and, you know, that film, you know, let me tell you, you know, we sent it to Sundance and they didn't put us in Sundance because they like MGC and Black Flag. You know, it's because we were telling like the cultural story, you know, about 
subculture in the Reagan era. And um, and it, that was yeah, it, it freaked people out in the eighties and continued to upset people uh, hearing about it. You know, twenty years later, in the two thousands, and and you know the story of Black Flag is repeated or echoed in different ways. You focus on regional scenes, uh, you know, but you also focus on basically four big bands in the book that that get either whole chapters or most of a chapter devoted to them. You've got Black Flag, the Bad Brains from D.C., and then they moved to New York. You've got the Dead Kennedys uh, almost getting their own chapter out of San Francisco. Then you've got Minor Threat in D.C., uh, and then the Misfits get a chapter. And, and Misfits is a perfectly apt name. I mean, they definitely did not fit in with that scene. But each of those bands, I mean, it's easy for us. At the time, it, it was it seemed ridiculous to think that any band out of this scene could get popular. But if you really look at the histories of these bands, each one of them in their own way flirted with popularity and made decisions that, from a careerist point of view, sabotaged the band. I mean, the Bad Brains are the most infamous example of that, where... Oh, yep. They repeatedly, they almost signed with Island Records. They were supposed to go out on tour with you too. But the singer HR is having this struggle where he wants to play reggae and has converted into Rastafarianism and is struggling with schizophrenia, which we didn't know at the time. And um, But this behavior, this erratic behavior that continues to sabotage him. And you know, again, with the Dead Kennedys, they have... the, the They put an HR Geiger poster in, in one of their albums and you know the PM, the Parents Music Research Council yep. is formed basically to shut them down. You know each each of these bands had their own Waterloo, and almost all of them were self-inflicted. And before we um, start talking about Minor Threat, I want to play Minor Threat's "Cashing In," which is a tongue-in-cheek parody of the kind of struggles they were going through, and and the kind of accusations they were facing from fans who felt that they were selling out. So here's Minor Threat's "Cashing In." <laughs> This is that was minor threats cashing in with Ian Mackay's tongue in cheek and ironic references to to selling out and this is at a time when the rest of the band is trying to learn U two songs and and thinking big I mean they were always a very tight musically excellent band but Ian didn't want to go that way and it and it it tore apart. Yes, it, it was funny there really were two factions to that well because because. Well, let's be serious. That's Ian Mackay's band, period. But since he was so uh, democratic about it or benevolent about it, he he shares the the bounty equally, which I think is probably the right thing to do. It's clearly the right thing to do, but um, in terms of the spirit of your group. But um, and one of them went on to become like a major rock guitarist. And another one became a lawyer. Uh, so that was one wing of the band who, like you said, were trying to become rock stars. They were trying to play with Glenn Danzig in a super group that didn't really work. That turned into Sam Hain. 
Um, they did an album with they, uh, Tesco V of the Meat Men, wore the Superbikes. Yeah. Ab- absolutely oh, the wow. biggest disappointment uh, of my mail-order music fan career. <laughs> yeah, I saw that band. I actually saw that band play. That was, uh, that was quite a scene. I, I, but, you know, the one thing was is that there, were, there was one wing of that band that really did, you know, rock stardom, which is the guitarist who created this you know, incredible guitar sound, no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, you know, we talk about the bar being set high, you know, they, like we saw in the movie that they hung out with the Bad Brains and, you know, the Bad Brains would practice and play and then hand the bass and the guitars over to them and say, here, you guys, you know, you guys practice. And, you know, yeah. and, and you, better, gonna... you, better, you better deliver. Set the scene on the bad brains a little bit because you know for a scene that was so white and and you know there's quotes in the book of people that sort of prided themselves that this was a scene where we didn't have to feel guilty that we were stealing music from black people, which is true in a way. But on the other hand, arguably the architects of the hardcore sound are the bad brains who are an African American group from D.C. who are a jazz fusion band that is yeah, converted I think to punk. Actually, so what I would say is that. Um, the, the bad brains really embody the American experience. You know, I'm absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm interested. In, I love the fact that like when the greatest golfers was Tiger Woods or one of the greatest rappers were the beastie boys and Eminem, you know, it's like, that's, that's America. You know, we, you know, that's what rock and roll was. It was a mix of, you know, blues was a mix of European instruments and slave music and rock and roll was a mix of white, music with you know the rhythm and blues so it's all about the gray area the bad brains were grew up in the suburbs of dc and they were you know most of them the two of them were grew up in the army you know traveled traveled the country you know they were pretty worldly open-minded guys they were um listening to like jazz fusion you know they were which is not jazz, you know, those are like the white guys playing the jazz, you <laughs> yeah. know, so, yeah. yeah, so they were, you know, they, uh, and, you know, they were like, uh, they learned about Rastafarianism, and they learned about Bob Marley and all that through punk rock, which, which, which kind of segue between each other on the, um, that was also chronological, too, because it was kind of like, um, you know, there was a lot, lot of connections between Jamaican music and British punk music, you know, from Scott to uh, chronologically meaning that uh, reggae, Bob Marley, was actually the first, was the last music before punk, kind of, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, so um, it just all kind of fit, you know, the whole thing just kind of fit and they were right for it and... Um, they were the greatest band, you know, you'd ever seen. Um, we're talking yeah. about these bands being their worst enemies. Um, then you get into the, uh, the business of music. And uh, I used to always hate, I, I'm not going to name any names, but like guys I know who came from underground who became super big rock stars and kind of disappeared. But I... Uh, don't have you know moved on to new friends etc but you know what i get it now because you need somebody to protect protect you 
from yourselves than from everyone else, you know? And like, you know, no one knew until recently, like, you know, what assholes the Eagles were or, you know, some band like that. You know, these were hard, you know, if this, if these guys were like in a hardcore scene where there was no managers and publicists and all that stuff around it, you know, everybody would have that feeling about them. Yeah, you know, wouldn't have the same feeling about them. Yeah, you know? but so, of course, without all the money is, and cocaine and bodyguards, they might not have been such horrible people. Right? No, no, I'm saying I'm not. I'm not. I still like. You know, I actually like read this thing about Fleetwood Mac. It was the story about the Rubers album and uh, like how that was all about just you know affairs and coke and you know like all these things. So I'm just like, let me check that out again, and it was just dreadful as I remembered it, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, so, it, and I remember like, you know, I was talking, I was telling somebody like, why did you hate all these bands so much? It was like, and I said, you know what, a lot of times it wasn't, probably wasn't even the band. It was just like, you know, you heard it a million times, you know, yeah, like, I know every note of dark, of dark side of the moon. I, I never, I could tell you every note on that album and I've never owned it or anything you know what i'm saying yeah like, that's what that people don't understand now i mean you know i recently came across the performer Florida and had never heard of mm -hmm. him and was and, and was watching a video about big, biggest selling artists through the decades and this is one of the biggest mm -hmm. selling artists musical artists of the 2010s i'd never heard of him in the 80s <laughs> if somebody had a major hit your grandmother heard of him. You know, Boy George was big in 83, and boom, everybody has to deal with Boy George because it's on the radio, it's on MTV, it's playing in the grocery stores. The the omnipresence of pop music culture in the 70s and 80s cannot be understated, and that's what hardcore was reacting so violently against. And, you know, that's another thing why I appreciate the book because millennials and younger have these fond feelings about Journey and, and, and you know, the Eagles and all this stuff. Because, you know, on the musical merits, maybe there's something to it. It's hard for me to, to appreciate that. But they didn't have it rammed on their throat, or they heard it when they were little, little tiny kids. So it is, they associate it with comfort and home and, and family and fun. And in the 80s, that was just not the case. You associated that music with the jocks who were beating you up every day. And, and, yeah, and, pretty much. There was... Um... I was, I was just about to interject that like last night I was watching TV and they had like Donny Osmond selling some Time Life music of the 70s set. And I was actually amazed that the music was worse than I remembered it. It was like, you know, like these kind of deep top 40 songs that I used to remember on, I used to memorize on Casey Kasem my, when I was 10 years old, you know, like Pina yeah. Colada era songs. Yeah, Yacht Rock. I mean, it's, it's worse than I remember. It's actually worse. They look worse. They look terrible. These are ugly bands, too. I mean, I've got, like, well, yeah, well, that was a period they're when... not being attractive, but they're ghastly looking. Their yeah. hair's terrible. Their clothes are terrible. Their music's thin. It's vapid. I mean, I, I don't even know where else to go with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't want to get the. It's sort of the project of the show is not to get into aesthetic arguments, but I think to yeah. talk about hardcore, you have to understand it as a reactionary movement, and that's been one yeah. of the things. As somebody who grew up with punk, and then 
reconciled myself with metal in my early 20s and played in sort of grunge-influenced bands in, in Austin in the early 90s, I, yep. I sort of feel guilty that I was I was into hip-hop a little bit, but I was completely deaf to dance music. I mean, I was going to dance clubs and trying to score drugs and get laid, but I was not paying any right. attention to what this music was. It was just right. synthesizers and drum machines booming, you know? And, and But now, in retrospect it's easy to see where guitar bands were this retrograde reactionary thing. And it, they were, we were not on the cutting edge of music. You know, we were expressing maybe a cutting edge of culture, but we weren't musically innovative in, in a way that say the EDM or, you know, the early techno guys were definitely the hip hop artists were. And when you see how grunge and the punk revival was co-opted by the system, once it finally did, you know, explode into the mass consciousness, yeah, it's it's very disheartening, and I think you know I really appreciate the book for documenting this movement when it was pure and when it did mean something, and the struggles that people had to go through, and and it wasn't just the Fleetwood Mac fans; it was also the what we called new waivers at the time. And people, yep. you know, in Austin, we had the new sincerity scene, and there were these bands like Zeitgeist and Tr- True Believers, and that that yeah. had record yeah. company no, interests. Yeah, and, I couldn't get with that. Yeah, um, no, it was. So you, it was... Remember, you, you when you talked about metal and punk and Texas, it reminded me of this amazing night. I was hanging out with the Butthole Surfers when they were still living in San Antonio, and they brought me to see this band, Watchtower. Yes, which if you remember, is like yes, uh, became early... dangerous toys eventually. Yeah, yeah, became dangerous toys, right? But they were on that compilation that. Whole Surfers compilation record with the Dicks and all really red and all those bands. Yeah, um, Cottage Cheese from the Lips of Death, I believe it was called. Yes, and uh, yeah, so I do. Uh, that was a really kind of a that was a pretty cool band. I remember that, but um, it was you know the, hardcore was like it, like music was almost like it wasn't. Of course, it was all about the music, right? You know, but it was not about like the richness of the music or the tonality of the music or the or the crispness of the music or was the singer lisping or is it muddled or I was it was just so amazing that you could make something so low tech and just put it out. I was just so amazed by that. You know, I went through this long thing of talking about um, history of you know how of the, all this major rock music and this was like just screaming to do the opposite and that's i think that's why we still talk about it because it was so radical and and powerful so radical, man it was like yeah, yeah i mean this is like you know this is why like people uh you know i don't want to get political about too political about it but you know there's certain movements that you know kind of sit on the under you know they, they just it just kind of gurgles on the edges for a while until it hits the mainstream so um... yeah i think the the best analog uh in american music history to hardcore is actually be jazz bebop when charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and other guys got tired of basically corny white guys trying to sit in with them and and decided to make the music so complicated that unless you were down and really 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 good you could not play with them and and it was an intellectual movement sort of presaging black separatism and and this declaration that we are artists and we're intellectuals and hardcore is different in that we it was any it was musically the opposite of that but it was a self 
segregation. It was people saying, we are opting out of the system. We are not going to be part of your system, and we're going to still make music, and we're still going to communicate with people that are like-minded, and, and eventually you're going to have to... I remember being in college to... and going like, there's this album by billions of dead cops that had just come out, and I'm like, you know, which way do I go? Do I like... Like, do I become a lawyer or do I go like the direction that this record's leading me? You know, and uh, I obviously chose the latter. <laughs> you know, yeah. But it was, it was. I, I remember that clearly at the time. I mean, it was like really just like, you know, are you in? Do you buy into Black Flag? You know, are you in on the bad brains? You know, do you believe? You know, I mean, and, I just thought the last. I was around. I it was around for. Went to and hung out at a uh, couple recent um, Danzig shows and uh, the Misfit shows. I'm sorry, and uh, you know I've heard feedback, you know, from lots of people. But it's like, let me tell you, the backstage, the band was in great spirits. It was like the first hardcore band to ever sell out an arena like that, like an old school band. Yeah, first old school punk band to sell out an arena. Uh, and it was like, it was deep. It was like, it was part of our history. You know, there's 18,000 people in those, in those skulls, crimson skull, whatever they're called shirts, you know, it's, uh, it's deep. It's like, you're, you're part of, you know, you're part of something that's so much deeper than music. That's why I have trouble, you know? I mean, I think it kind of wrecked me in many ways because like I, like we said, the bar was so high for doing the right thing with your, you know, it wasn't only music. It was like, how do you handle yourself? Exactly. Like, and that's your beliefs. Why I'm glad you brought up MDC because they were an Austin band called the stains. They yeah. changed their name to MDC, you know, millions of dead cops, multi-death corporation. They had, you know, many variations of what the acronym stood for. But they were deeply involved in one of the incidents that was the Bad Brains Waterloo. And the Bad Brains right. are these you know, middle-class, open-minded kids who get into first a self-help book called Think and Grow Rich and really use that to power their music and their project, but also show this propensity for believing sort of cult mentality stuff. Then they get into Rastafarianism and go all in and adopt the homophobia of Rastafarianism and have this... Un- fortunate collision in Austin with the big boys who had an openly gay lead singer, the Dicks had an openly gay lead singer, the Stains have an openly gay lead singer, get into this right, stupid right. ass confrontation over a $25 pot deal and MDC then evangelizes against them around the country for years after that. And and in Austin to this day, if you get old punkers together, the bad brains are still very controversial, which is painful because they were such a great band and yet it's impossible to hear the tales of the things that HR did to people without understanding why people are still pissed. I mean, if if, you know, I mean, fight your own battles is really how I look at it. You know, it's like if, if, uh, you know, that battle is not led by the big boys. If you noticed. No, absolutely not. Tim Kerr is, you know, a a huge inspiration to the scene and and somebody I've admired for years and, 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 you know, uh, just a great guy. I mean, he's just been a, yeah. a, 
a, a linchpin of the scene. And he, you know, reading his account of that incident is so painful because he was clearly knew he was caught in the middle of this crossfire, that it was stupid, yeah. that it was self-defeating. He loved the Bad Brains music, but he has to, you know, once it's a fight, you have to choose sides. He's got to go with his band, his singer, uh, yeah. you know, in the face of the stupid bigotry on the part of the Bad Brains. But Let's play our last song, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the metal crossover and kind of the end of hardcore before we wrap. But this is the Bad Brains' Sacred Love. This is from their mid-'80s SST album, I Against I, where they had Ron St. Germain, big-time production, and still had to record a song with the vocalist in jail. So this is uh, Sacred Love by the Bad Brains. that was a bad brain sacred love from their sst album eye against eye and you know you hear that you heard it at the time i remember that just blowing a hole through our high school i mean that was one of the first punk records where we could play it for our metalhead friends and there was none of this oh we apologize because it's kind of wimpy or this is sloppy or this is doesn't mean i mean the heavy metal guys immediately got it it just blew people Mm -hmm. away and you know, by we never heard the rumors that they were going to sign with Island or tour with you two. I mean, you know, we just had this album and never knew why they didn't come touring. You know, and and um, as it turns out, they self sabotage. But at the same time, metal is you know, metal was initially very anti-punk. You have a quote from uh, one of the guys in Iron Maiden talking about how they resented being called the new wave of heavy metal, you know, that they didn't want to be associated with punk. But by the mid-80s, you've got bands like Metallica and Slayer that are, you know, Kerry King would have a DK sticker on his guitar. They covered, you know, Guilty of Being White in a bad way. You know, they changed the lyrics to make it, it was already iffy if you didn't understand the context of being you know, the only white kid in a school in D.C., and they basically turn it into a racist statement, you know, and so that was kind of one of the signals of the death of hardcore was when so many bands like DRI does an album called Crossover and, and goes metal. Corrosion of Conformity goes metal. Uh, other bands like Husker Du sign with Major Label and are trying to go pop. Like, can you give us a quick summation of that that end of hardcore? Right, right. So you get, you know, for for half a decade you have this incredible ferment of unity and revolution and of like all, like any movement it kind of fritters away um and people grow up and this had, had a lot to do with it um you get better at your instrument do you want to uh be a singer songwriter if you will uh like a bob mold or did you want to become a a metal god with this new metal that you learn, be it SSD Control in Boston or uh, COC in Carolina or DRI, and basically you'd move to San Francisco at that point. Um, but uh, I guess they weren't from, they were from Houston, if I remember. Yeah, they're a Houston band, definitely. A yeah, I, I saw them in Houston, yeah. But I think they played one of the shows I was at then. I, I used to like them. But anyway, so uh, regardless, there was like these two two different directions you were going to go and uh nobody really stayed the course 
So Ian Mackay didn't stay the course, you know. Uh, you know. Um, yeah, he was committed to the so ideals, did, but he didn't yeah, musically yeah, they're, they're fall the away people. from it. Right, they're still the same people, but you know, you kind of it's like, what do you want out of your? What do you want from life? Right? You're like, what direction do you want to go? You know, you're your own individual. So some people went one way, some people went another way. Uh, nobody seemed to like either of them, uh, which spurred on a second wave, which I guess probably starts with in New York with Agnostic Front and the Chrome Mags, um, uh, sick of it all, you know, it starts. So absolutely. And, uh, and people I've... who uh, gorilla biscuits guys who are believers, these are the believers, you know, these weren't the pioneers. So it's, I, I compare it a lot to Jesus, a lot of this, because it's like, these are the followers, you know, the, um, there's, the apostles going out and the New Testament them. that weren't written to like a hundred plus years after Jesus' death. So yeah. you can imagine the stuff they were coming up with. You know, that's a long yeah. time back then. And so, uh, you know, that was kind of like my feeling about hardcore was that the, the history hadn't really been told. So it was almost like a game of telephone. You know, it was like people hadn't really known it, which is my inspiration on all this. But anyway, so this whole thing comes crashing down, you know. I've had some people say, like, oh, why do you say 1986? It's over. Well, minor threat breaks up. Uh, Black flag breaks up. Dead Kennedys break up. This is all 86. You know, 86 is that tremendous kind of crossover record of uh, Eye Against Eye by the Bad Brains. You know, 86 is, um, you know, Danzig's first album. Uh, yeah, it's the start of Dan, Sam uh, Haynes. I think it was Sam Haynes. Sam Haynes, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're seeing something different there. Um, and 86 is, uh, you know, the is really where the crossover happens with, uh, you know, incredible records by Slayer, uh, uh, Slayer Metallica. Yeah, Rain and, and Blood comes out and of these. And to a lesser degree, Anthrax all had these really good records, you know, and they were definitely and, into punk. And I mean, Stormtroopers of Death, punk. the Anthrax spinoff band. Yeah, right, right. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, the angle, that's the angle of hardcore, 100%. So, you know, this whole thing's going on. I um, was on a few dates of the Slayer Rain and Blood tour. And I got to say, it reminded me of one of those Dead Kennedys tours in terms of the ultraviolence, you know. Yes. Um, so I, uh, I really felt the connection to all that stuff. A big moment was uh, there was a black, one of these Black Flag shows in 1986 is in New Jersey. And the band playing the next night at the club down the street is Metallica who were on a record label called Megaforce, which was in that same area. So they were at the show and I could tell, and you know, there's a part of it in the book that talks about, you know, a few people who were there, but you know, you could tell that they had, were just starting to see this thing. They were just starting to get that there's like this whole other world out there beyond metal, you know, and, and very soon after that, they no no longer have the poodle hair, you know. Or yeah. the bullet belt. 
You know what I'm saying? They, you know, they understood the power of this stuff. You know, they'd go see like, you know, Crow Mags or something. And then, you know, there's no going back after that. Yeah. It, it was, you can't go back to, can't go back to journey solos after seeing like, you know, seeing Crow Mags and Agnostic Front. You and know. you can't go back to the kids will have their say after seeing Slayer yeah. Metallica either. And and like right. you say, you know, once SSD learned how to play, they, uh, you know, weren't the same band. Once Vinny Stigma started getting real guitarists to overdub his parts and, yeah. and <laughs> openly miming on stage, you know, yeah. uh, it's just a different thing. So, Stephen, this has been great uh, talking about American hardcore. We could, I mean, it's a massive history. We could talk about it for hours and hours. I definitely recommend the book and movie to anybody who hasn't read or seen it. And thanks for coming on. And hope we can have you back to talk about hair metal, which you are also the historian of. Yes. Uh, you could learn more about my roots, so to speak. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, thanks it's so really much, been Steve. a pleasure. Yeah. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Steph conclude their Brian Jones Q&A. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.